0: Welcome to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. This is part one of a multi-part series where Denver addresses the question, how do I get the most out of gospel study? Where do I begin? It can be frustrating to read and not really get much out of a text aside from the most obvious and superficial reading. What can I do or what skills or approaches do I need to utilize in order to make my study effective so I can both understand and experience the gospel as well as prepare for Zion?
1: We have a tendency all of us, to take concepts or pictures or ideas and to put them in our heads and then to rely upon those pictures as we go forward learning new things. The object being to fit what we learn that is new into the framework of what we already know or we're already familiar with. That can be handicapping. In the, the 28th chapter of Second Nephi, uh, Nephi cautioned us about permitting what he calls the traditions of men to override what he calls the whisperings of the spirit. And he suggests that you run into mistakes, you run into errors, some of them terrible errors when you permit those traditions or those those pictures that you already have inside your head to be the framework from which you reconstruct new information that you learn, it's hard to do so. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you would be best advised to start with a blank slate and to allow it to inform you as if you're hearing it for the first time, because those words in Scripture don't necessarily mean what the picture in your head suggests that they mean. Let me pull an example. If you've got your Scriptures, you're welcome to pull them out and turn the pages and make all the noise you want, finding the Joseph Smith history. You are not in a sacrament meeting, and therefore your scriptures are, are welcome to be used. In the Joseph Smith uh, history, the, um, it's the eighth verse. Uh, he says, um, about halfway through that eighth verse, in process of time, my mind became somewhat partial to the Methodist sect. And I felt some desire to be united with them. Once again, this is high praise for Margaret Barker, a Methodist scholar. Um, But laying that aside, during the time of uh, this period, there was a, a, um, particularly in the revivalist part of Methodism, there was a group called the Shouting Methodists. And the Shouting Methodists had a tradition. That tradition was to go into the woods alone to pray. And when they prayed alone in the woods, they were looking for some experience that would bind them up. And when they got bound up, they knew that they'd had an experience with God and the Holy Ghost, and they came back converted. The miracle of the first vision of Joseph Smith does not consist in the fact that he went in the woods alone to pray. Nor does it consist in the fact that when he's in the woods alone and praying that he got bound up by some darkness which entirely overcame him. The miracle of Joseph Smith is that when that happened he rejected it as the source of conversion. He did not allow his fears to control him. He did not allow the tradition to control him. But calling upon God he then pressed through to receive what lays on the other side of the fears and of the darkness and of the things that put you off the trail to God. And he tells us about the vision of the Father and the Son, telling him that he was to join none of them. He goes on for some space of years And during that space of years, he talks about how he frequently fell into many foolish errors displayed by the weaknesses of youth and the foibles of human nature. And then he talks about he was guilty of levity and sometimes associating with jovial company. One of the pictures I think you have in your head about me, if you've read what I've written and you've read my blog, is that you may entirely misapprehend Number one, how difficult it is for me to get up here and do this. (laughs) And number two, how incredibly irreverent I am by my native nature. I am not a stoic religious person. I undertake to do what the Lord asks, what I think pleases Him, at the cost of personal inconvenience. I don't like being up here, and it's being recorded by my voice and not by a camera because I don't want people recognizing me. I don't want to be a celebrity. I want my privacy. And, and when it comes to a native um, cheery temperament, I have, I suppose, a wicked sense of humor Well, he called upon, and he had confidence, because he had previously received an answer, uh, and verse 29, he had confidence that uh, he would have an answer and a divine manifestation as he had previously had one. Then, he gives the account in some detail of the appearance of the angel Moroni, how it occupied the night, and he passes through the events of his life, until we get to the time in which during the translation of the Book of Mormon, beginning in verse 68, they come upon the the ordinance of baptism. They went into the woods. They prayed in May of 1829, and John the Baptist appears and confers authority upon them. And immediately after conferring the authority upon Joseph Smith, the angel says to him, He said that this Aaronic priesthood had not the power of laying on hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, but that this should be conferred on us hereafter. And then uh, we get to verse 73, which is a description of what happened after uh, being baptized immediately on our coming out of the water after we've been baptized we experienced great and glorious blessings from our Father, our Heavenly Father. No sooner had I baptized Oliver Cowdery than the Holy Ghost fell upon him. He stood up and prophesied many things which should shortly come to pass. And again, as soon as I had been baptized by him, I also had the spirit of prophecy. When standing up, I prophesied concerning the rising of the church and many other things connected with the church. And this generation, we were filled with the Holy Ghost and rejoiced in the God of our salvation. Our minds now being enlightened, we began to have the scriptures laid open to our understandings, and the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us in a manner which we could never attain to previously, nor ever before had thought of. Now, here are the questions. He saw God the Father, and he saw Jesus Christ in a vision. And if you read all of the accounts, you find out it was a vision that included a view into heaven, for he saw the heavenly hosts. Because the Father does not appear without a host. The Son can appear alone, but the Father never does. If you see the Father, you are going to see a host. And thereafter he's visited by the angel Moroni, and he's tutored not merely through the one night, but and successive annual occurrences for four years. And yet, the first time his testimony mentions the Holy Ghost is after baptism. And after baptism, using authority, which the angel told him had not the right to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost. That would happen at some subsequent occasion. Why then, without the laying on of hands, by one having authority, did Joseph Smith receive the Holy Ghost? Not merely as a visitation, mind you. Read the words. It lingered. It persisted. Because after they were baptized... We began to have the scriptures laid open to our understanding of the true meaning and intention of the more mysterious passages revealed to us. that required scripture study over the ensuing weeks, months, years. There we encounter a word, mysterious passages. <laughs> you know that Peter in second Peter chapter one. I don't know, verse 16 maybe? You look it up. He says um, that the scriptures are not of any private interpretation, but holy men spake as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. The scriptures were given by the power of the Holy Ghost. And now Joseph Smith is explaining that he could unravel their mysteries by the power of the Holy Ghost. And things that did not make sense before make sense. If you've read um, the second comforter in the chapter about becoming as a little child, there is an excerpt taken um, from a book, Godel Escher Bach, um, a brilliant mathematical book, about Bongard problems. Bond guard problems are designed to test um, a certain kind of reasoning using symbols in order to uh, test the person evaluating them. And invariably, bond guard problems are solved by children and they confuse adults because the children's minds have not become cluttered by the kind of mathematical complexity that we have bouncing around in our heads, as a consequence of which they look at it simply and they see things simply and they can solve the Vanguard problems in a way in which adults fail to grasp. The gospel is adapted to the simple mind. The statements that are contained in scripture are given in simplicity and in plainness. So when we encounter Joseph Smith speaking to us now about having the mysteries of the gospel uh, laid open to his mind as a consequence of having the Holy Ghost, I'm reminded of a statement that he made um, that you find in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith about the Holy Ghost on pages 149 and 150 uh, which I'm going to read an excerpt from. There are two comforters spoken of. One is the Holy Ghost, the same as given on the day of Pentecost, and that all saints receive after faith, repentance, and baptism. This first comforter, and by the way, Joseph Smith is saying this at a time when the authority for the laying on of hands had been restored. But his list is faith and repentance and baptism. And that produces the same effect as on the day of Pentecost. If you listen to the words of the ordinance that's performed in the church, the words of the ordinance are an admonition to you to receive the Holy Ghost. It's telling you to do something. Well, This first comforter or Holy Ghost has no other effect than pure intelligence. It's more powerful in expanding the mind, enlightening the understanding, and storing the intellect with present knowledge. Did you get that list of things? The effect of the Holy Ghost is pure intelligence. I can watch Lawrence of Arabia... And when they've successfully knocked the train off the track and the group he is leading has charged and overcome the enemy and Lawrence is walking on the top of the trains with the flowing robes, I can get goosebumps. It is moving. It is stirring. That's not the Holy Ghost. I can have that same effect with Les Miserables, I can have that same effect with some of the scenes in Joseph's amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Moving and stirring things can delight your senses. That's not the Holy Ghost. has no other effect than pure intelligence, expanding the mind enlightening the understanding, storing the intellect with present knowledge. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm trying to inform you of doctrine that will save you. I don't care if any of you are stirred. Or, like one of our MSNBC folks, had a uh, tremor run up his leg at uh, the president's speaking. I don't care about that. I care about your salvation. I care about your souls. And I care about you understanding the things that will save you. Joseph Smith gave the list pure intelligence, expanding the mind, enlightening the understanding, storing the intellect with present knowledge. In the translation of the book of Moses, which was Joseph correcting the book of Genesis, He gives a list there of the Holy Ghost as well. Let me read you that list. The Comforter, the peaceable things of immortal glory. This is Moses chapter 6, verse 61. The Comforter, the peaceable things of immortal glory. The truth of all things. That which quickeneth all things, which maketh alive all things, that which knoweth all things, and hath all power according to wisdom, mercy, truth, justice, and judgment. This is the Holy Ghost. Joseph Smith returned from the first vision and didn't talk about the Holy Ghost because that incident, quite frankly, was not understood by Joseph Smith at the time it occurred. When he explained to his mother, he said, never mind, I'm well enough off, I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism isn't true. And I think that is a candid description of what Joseph got out of it that day, at that time. He had been converted, and he knew now not to join the Presbyterians. What Joseph Smith learned from the angel Moroni also did not confer upon him the Holy Ghost. Faith, repentance, baptism, and then he notes the Holy Ghost. And what are the effects that he reports? Immediately. Number one, prophecy. One of the uh, hallmark signs, Paul lists it in Corinthians. Um, Mormon and Moroni, listed in Moroni's book. The list of what the gifts are. You can find it in Doctrine and Covenants section 46, if I'm remembering that correctly. The list of the gifts. Prophecy is always included as one of the hallmark signs of what it is that the Holy Ghost does. And then secondly allowing Joseph to understand the real intent of what is in the scriptures. How much of a blank slate was Joseph at the time that that the Holy Ghost allowed him? The pure spirit of intelligence. Well, I would suggest that if Joseph Smith can pass through the first vision and can pass through the incident of the um, visits of the angel Moroni, and if he can even translate the Book of Mormon, which was then underway at the time this occurred, by the gift and power of God, but not attribute anything to the Holy Ghost until after he is baptized, that it is equally possible for you good people to go through everything you've gone through in your life and yet not have experienced the thing that Joseph is talking about, which comes as a consequence of faith, repentance, and baptism. In uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, uh, there's a promise that John records. Well, and the 20 is uh, where he no- stands at the door and knocks. Uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. See, the, in, in, this, in this description, um, it's, almost, it's almost a flip. It's not you knocking to get in. <laughs> it's the Lord knocking to come to you. It's the Lord who is the, the eager one, the one who would like to have this relationship take up. He's the one knocking. He's the one trying to to get into your life. And so in in this account, I stand at the door, the Lord speaking, and knock. If any man hear my voice, see, his sheep hear his voice. Do, Do you hear his voice? If any man hear my voice and open the door, because you're the one that shut it. You're the one that's saying, yeah, no thanks, I'll pass. I mean, I've got a skeptical mind now. I've been to college and received training to practice law. I'm an engineer, and I understand formulas and equations. I'm a mathematician, and I know some things add up and some things don't. And I also know that I've been leading a reasonably decent life, and I've never had Jesus in my car. Our minds are skeptical We have to open the door because almost invariably the door that we configure to keep him out from our construct is something that has come about as a consequence of what happened in your life from the time you left that state of innocence as a child in the garden until today. Every painful experience you've been through, every humiliation you've suffered, everything that has gone on in your life that has led to where you now construct a door, some of oak, some of iron, whatever it is that's happened to you, you use that to keep him out. Well, if he really cared, he would. You know, the notion... That he doesn't care is the greatest lie of all. If you knew what he suffered, you would never say if he cared. But if you'll open the door, he says, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Verse 8, once again, so great were the confusion and strife among the different denominations, it was impossible for a person young as I was and so unacquainted with men and things to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. See, that's that's the way it is. Verse 10, there's always this war of worlds, war of words. War of worlds, that's what your kids play. Um, War of words and tumult of opinions. And so Joseph is um, confused. How do you resolve this? Verse 11, while it was laboring. While I was laboring. You folks in general have your skulls so junked up with the crap of the Internet that you don't even have the capacity to labor the way it needs to be labored to solve the questions mm-hmm. that need to be solved. It is labor. It is labor over the scriptures. It is labor under the extreme difficulties caused by these parties of religionists. It was one day reading the epistle of James, first chapter, fifth, fifth verse, which reads, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and it braideth not, and it shall be given him. Let him ask of God. God gives to all men liberally, and it braideth not, and it shall be given him. I can ask God, God will give to me. God will give to me liberally. God will not tell me. There are lines here you mustn't cross. There are things about which you must not inquire. There are things your heart is not yet prepared to receive. You don't have standing. He gives liberally. He can let you know what you need to know from your study and inquiry into the truth. And no man can stop that because this is a matter between you and God. It has always been a matter between you and God. There is no friar with a brown frock that you need to bend the knee to in order to please God. If Joseph had known that, the friar with the frock, he would never have achieved the revolution that he achieved. Well, when you're laboring, as verse 11 suggests, and when you hit the right verse, as verse 11 recites, then Verse 12 confirms how you get answers to these kinds of inquiries. Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did. At this time, to mine, it seemed to enter with great force. You know, turn back to um, Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, and look at verse 18. This is the vision of the redemption of the dead that gave us the three degrees of glory. They're reading in John. And it gives you the, um, the verse in John that they were reading in verses 16 and 17. And look at 18. Now this caused us to marvel, for it was given unto us of the Spirit. The Spirit cannot lean upon you and cannot focus your mind upon the revelation that you are entitled to receive unless you use the scriptures as they were intended to be used as a Urim and Thummim, as the basis from which you draw out the truths of God. And the best version of that is, of course, the Book of Mormon. You can look at DNC section 138 and you'll find that Joseph F. Smith sat in his room pondering over the scriptures. He's near death. It's about eight weeks before the death of Joseph F. Smith. Church had a lot of challenges going on at that time. Fortuitously for us, the man who sat at home, infirm, and worried about death, happened to happily be the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so when he got an answer, not to his inquiry about leading the church, when he got an answer to an inquiry that had nothing to do with his position or um, budgets or anything else that manages an organization. It had to do with his own concern about his own deepest apprehensions, his impending death, which would follow about eight weeks after this. The scriptures opened like a Urim and Thummim to his view. And we get a vision of the redemption of the dead, which we've now canonized. It entered, this is back uh, verse 12 of the Joseph Smith history, it entered into uh, his heart with great force of every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again. Now, that's an interesting statement because it doesn't appear that this labor was a one-off event, but that it occurred over and over as he sought more understanding, searching deeper and deeper into trying to understand what it was he ought to do and how it is he ought to accomplish it. Again and again, knowing if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. You should be asking God so that you can understand scripture. You shouldn't be trusting the expositions of anyone Myself included. These scriptures have a message for you. God has a message for you. God would like to talk to you. Not through me or any other man. God would like to talk with you. To be saved by knowledge. And the things you need to know are uniquely situated. The things you have the right to get from God are uniquely situated. I got an answer from God. That's why 40 years ago today, I went in and I got baptized. Elder Brian Black baptized me. During the baptismal service, because it was approaching twilight, the sun was beginning to set The moon had emerged and the first stars began to shine. And Brian Black commented in the talk that was given by him before laying on hands that all of the signs of heaven, the sun, the moon, and the stars, had been visible during my baptismal ceremony. I have felt the presence of God with me from that moment through today. Just this morning, I checked into my office before coming here. And when I arrived at my office, there was a dove on the lawn to meet me. And she stayed there as I went by. Now, it's a small thing, but if you're acquainted with the scriptures, you understand what such a symbol can mean and to me did mean. Your lives should be filled with wonder. Be not faithless, but be believing, and be of good cheer. He knows you better than you know yourself. I was belly aching about an idiot friend. Um. <laughs> and as I am wont to do, It was prayerful. State president asked me a few weeks ago about whether I was praying at the time that I had one of the encounters he and I discussed. Um, And I said, it's not a fair question. Um, I wake up in the morning and I start to pray. Throughout the day, I will take care of a thousand things And whenever I am free, my mind will revert back to the prayer and will continue the dialogue, and it goes on all day. There is not a moment in my life in which I am not being prayerful. And so the answer to the question is, I suppose, yes, I was praying because there's hardly a moment when I'm idle when I am not praying. Well, God intends to speak to each of us about us and about what matters to us and about what matters to you. He, unlike us, is not bounded by the linear existence that we have. All things, past, present, and future, are continually before the Lord. In fact, it's really sort of an interesting study. If you, if you take and you look at what the Lord does in 3 Nephi, he has this agenda that he's been assigned by the Lord, or by the Father. And, and Christ discharges the agenda, and he, and he goes through... And as you read the, the chapters in Third Nephi, it's really structured. It's really orderly. And then he announces, now, now I've finished what the Father told me to deliver to you. And he just begins to talk. And as he begins to talk, what unfolds is non-chronological. It's topical, but it's past, present, and future. His thoughts are not like our, th- our thoughts. They aren't. They're nonlinear. Sometimes (laughs) that's not easy. At length, he says in verse 13, I came to the conclusion I must either remain in darkness and confusion or else I must do as James directs. That is ask of God. And so it is for all of us. You want to know the truth of a proposition? You ask God. And don't be fearful. If you ask, he'll answer. But you better be prepared for the answer. Because the battle that is already upon us is going to require valiance. Cowardly, effeminate, hen-like behavior can never never obtain the promises of God. Christ asked, what went you forth to see? A reed shaking in the wind? <laughs> that's that's what you want? I don't think John the Baptist cried on demand. And Zion isn't a bank. <laughs> So it is, in accordance with this, my determination to ask of God, I retired to the woods to make the attempt. It was on the morning of a beautiful, clear day, early in the spring of 1820. It's the first time in my life I'd made such an attempt. For amidst all my anxieties, I'd never as yet made the attempt to pray vocally. After I'd retired to the place where I'd previously designed Finding myself alone, I kneeled down, began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I'd scarcely done so when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me. Had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Thick darkness gathered around me. Seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. You know, we have... Orson Hyde's account of this thick darkness. I don't want to read it to you. This is Orson Hyde writing about the, the incident we just looked at. He, therefore, retired to a secret place in a grove, but a short distance from his father's house, and knelt down and began to call upon the Lord. At first, he was severely tempted by the powers of darkness, which endeavored to overcome him. The adversary benighted his mind with doubts and brought to his soul all kinds of improper pictures and tried to hinder him in his efforts and the accomplishment of his goal. However, the overflowing mercy of God came to buoy him up. You know, If salvation consists in obtaining knowledge, you can't afford to clutter your mind with the kinds of things which can readily summon up improper images, improper thoughts, improper ambitions. In fact, it doesn't matter what you want. There's only one thing that matters, And that is, what is the Lord's will for you, with you? And that will is always the same, to bring about your happiness, ultimately to bring about your joy. He tells you that his burden is light, because however it may seem in the direful circumstances of 1838 in the life of Joseph Smith, This statement of faith, this testimony of truth was worth the price that Joseph was called upon to pay to obtain it. The things of God are infinitely preferable to anything that can be offered to you here in this world. You may indeed be able to buy anything in this world for money. But don't let that ever be the case with your heart or your soul. Zion will not have an economy because they have all things in common. So Joseph, in verse 16, tells you that it is some um, marvelous power from the unseen world. Let me take you back to that statement. A man is saved no faster than he gets knowledge, for if he does not get knowledge, he will, brought in, he will be brought into captivity by some evil power in the other world, as evil spirits will have more knowledge and consequently more power. Well, apply that quote in the context of um, what Joseph is experiencing there. And... Um, And realize this is not uh, merely something that will happen after you depart this world. It's something that, in fact, does happen here. I mean, being blinded here is part of being captured by the captivity of the adversary to your soul. Awake and arise. and Shake off the scales that blind you. Scales which like contact lenses, on the one hand, but scales like judging wrongly, on the other hand. You have to judge a matter aright. And if the judgment that you judge is not just, then the scales of your eyes are darkness indeed. And so he called upon God to escape this being from the unseen world. And he saw a pillar of light exactly over his head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages. We'll get into this more in uh, Idaho Falls. He saw two personages. Note the word. Joseph knows what he's talking about. He was in the presence of these beings. He will later describe them as a doctrinal exposition, which the church accepted as doctrine, and which was, for a season, in your scriptures. That's why you need to bring your articles of faith to uh, Idaho Falls. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name. Um, I've mentioned this uh, on a number of occasions. I want to mention it again here. When God calls a person by name, it is not your full legal name. Joseph Smith, Jr. I mean, that's my Cecil B. DeMille version of uh, Ten Commandments, the voice of God, Moses. The casual friendship. I don't know what Joseph was called at this point in his life. I don't know if it was Joey. I don't know if it was Junior. I don't know what the name was that he went by. Whoever his most intimate companion was. That was what the Lord called him. If it was Joey, it was Joey. God doesn't call you by whatever your driver's license is. So he called him by name. Do you know how comforting it is to have God call you by a familiar name? Instead of recoiling in horror, he's drawing you in. Instead of stiff-arming you like I am the great and powerful, he wants you comfortable in his presence. So much so that when you enter into his presence, it is a matter, of course, that God invariably forgives your sins. In 1921, um, the lectures on faith were dropped from the scriptures by a committee that was comprised of George F. Richards, Anthony W. Ivins, Melvin J. Ballard, James E. Talmadge, John A. Woodso, and Joseph Fielding Smith. That committee dropped the Lectures on Faith from the Scriptures because they said um, certain lessons entitled Lectures on Faith, which were bound with the Doctrine and Covenants and some of its former issues, are not included in this edition. Those lessons were prepared for use in the School of Elders, but they were never presented nor accepted by the church as being otherwise than theological lessons or lectures. That's a lie. And the Joseph Smith papers, if you will read them today, tell you that that's not at all the truth. And part of what I hope to get to tonight, and if not tonight, then in Logan, is the reasons why. Joseph Smith called this doctrine, important doctrine, leading items of the religion, and that he would answer to every principle that's advanced in the the document. Now, to his credit, um, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was on that, said, um, this was in, uh, 1966. He said, I suppose that the rising generation knows little about the lectures. In my own judgment, these lectures are of great value and should be studied. I consider them to be of extreme value in the study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a talk given, um, by Elder Bruce R. McConkie at Brigham Young University, the son-in-law to the one of the committee members whose words I just read, Um, in uh, January the 4th of 1972, that would have been before I was there, um, Elder McConkie said, every time I read a Bruce R. McConkie, I'm just, I am tempted to read it in the voice of Elder McConkie, which echoes still in my skull. I won't do that. (laughs) And I'm reading him now. In my judgment, it is the most comprehensive, intelligent, inspired utterance that now exists in the English language, that exists in one place, defining, interpreting, expounding, announcing, and testifying what kind of being God is. It was written by the power of the Holy Ghost, by the spirit of inspiration. It is, in effect, eternal scripture. It is true. Which brings us then to the third lecture on faith. Now we're starting really to get into some important stuff. So I hope your chair is painful enough to keep you awake. Personally, I'd rather stand up here than sit in one of those things. That's it. You could get this over with a lot quicker if you put me in one of those chairs and said, talk until you're sick of that. (laughs) Verse 2 of Lecture 3, let us here observe that three things are necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God. Faith in God unto life and salvation. Faith in God, not in man, not in men, not in an institution, not in some magic talisman. Faith in God. Faith in God unto life and salvation. Faith in God, not in man, not in men, not in an institution, not in some magic talisman. Faith in God. To the extent that anyone is trying to displace your faith in God, and attract attention to themselves, myself included. That is a perversion. It will not save you. It is a distraction. It is evil. It is wrong. It is damnable. Anyone that tries to attract your worship, myself included, ought to be sent to hell. It's why I continually remind you, talking about me is a waste of time. Talking about the things I'm saying, talking about the content of these scriptures, talking about the doctrines that will save you, that's very important, but you can leave me out of that. You don't ever need to mention my name again in your life, but pay attention to the doctrine that we're talking about. Pay attention to the message that comes to us through scripture. You will never be saved because you relied upon some guy to elevate you. The only way in which that will happen is when you connect with God. You have to exercise faith in God into life and salvation. There are three things. First, the idea that he actually exists. You can get that from someone else. Secondly, a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. Any error in that prevents you from having faith. Therefore, in order to get that right, it's going to require something of you in the way of study and effort. Because if you're making, look at the word. They italicized it. A correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. That's what you need to study to show what it is you're going to have faith in. Thirdly, an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to his will. You must know this, and you cannot cover the gap by lying to yourself. You can't lie to yourself pretending that you are on God's course and then have actual knowledge that the course of life you're pursuing is according to his will. Nor can you depend entirely upon what other people are telling you. You're supposed to be asking and getting answers from God. And the answers from God are going to tell you what you need to do. And the sacrifices that he will require of you are unique to you because the contribution that you can make for the salvation of yourself and others is unique to you. There are things that you and only you can do. And if you will sign up with God, he will have you do them. And you may find yourself doing things you would rather prefer not doing. doesn't matter. If you have faith in him and you do what he asks... You'll know that the course you're pursuing is according to his will. And doing things he asks of you according to his will invariably produce faith. And they produce faith into salvation because it always grows. Light grows or dims. It never stays static. Therefore, when you set on this course, you never turn back. You turn back, you lose everything that you've gained up to that point. Look at verse 5. This is third, an actual knowledge of the course of life which he is pursuing is according to his will. For without an acquaintance with these three important facts, the faith of every rational being must be imperfect and unproductive. But with this understanding, it can become perfect and fruitful, abounding in righteousness. Under the praise and glory of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, these three things you need to know God exists. You need to study until you have a correct understanding of his character, perfections, and attributes. And then you have to live your life so that you actually know that the course you're leading in your life conforms to what he would have. Turn to verse 23. It is also necessary that men should have an idea that he is no respecter of persons for with the idea of all the other excellencies in his character and this one wanting, men could not exercise faith in him because if he were a respecter of persons, they could not tell what their privileges were nor how far they were authorized to exercise faith in him or whether they were authorized to do it at all but all must be confusion. But no sooner are the minds of men made acquainted with the truth on this point, that he is no respecter of persons, than they see that they have authority by faith to lay hold on eternal life, the richest boon of heaven, because God is no respecter of persons and that every man in every nation has an equal privilege. That's you. That's you. God has done nothing for Joseph Smith. He will not do for you. I understand all of the doctrinal arguments. I can make them all. I have made them all. And I've made them to the Lord. I've argued with him on every point of doctrine that any of you, I've quoted to him every scripture that any of you have advanced and many more besides. And the Lord has always borne testimony back consistently. This stuff is true. You're hedging up the way of your own salvation and of the salvation of others when you say no one has the privilege in our day yet to lay hold on salvation. You're hedging up the way, you are damning yourself, and you're damning those that will listen to you when you say people in our time are not yet authorized to exercise faith in God and to salvation because you are authorized. I have done so. I have spoken with him. As a man speaks to another, he speaks in plain humility, reasoning as one man does with another. He will reason with you. The first night I got a testimony, I was in the middle of an argument with God, I thought with myself, until when I got down to the final question in my mind, which was, how do I even know there is a God? To which the response came, who do you think you've been talking to the last two hours? (laughs) I didn't realize that that still small voice, which will talk with any and all of you, was God. When you exercise the required faith to permit him to step out from behind the veil, like the brother of Jared, he'll do that too. He's no respecter of persons. You should not question what your privileges are nor how far you are authorized to exercise faith in him, or whether you're authorized to do it at all. Don't have doubts about your privileges. And then verse 24, twice, he is love. He is love. He is love. In verse 3, it talks about having the assurance that they were pursuing a course which was agreeable to the will of God, they were enabled to take not only the spoiling of their goods and the wasting of their substance joyfully, but also to suffer death in its most horrid forms, knowing, not merely believing, that when this earthly house of their tabernacle was dissolved, they had a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's why Joseph could say, as he did, that he left with a conscience void of offense against God or any man, going as a sheep to the slaughter, but he was okay with it. He was okay with it. Such was and always will be the situation of the saints of God, that unless they have an actual knowledge that the course they are pursuing is according to the will of God, they will grow weary in their minds and faint. That's the problem with many of us. We grow weary in our minds and faint because we don't know that the course we're pursuing is according to God. Don't grow weary. Stay on that course. I have the absolute conviction that much of the stuff that we plague ourselves with and think is such a heavy burden of sin is because our minds are occupied with the wrong stuff. Study the things of God and fill yourself with light and how quickly it is that all of the rest of that stuff will simply dissolve away and evaporate. Um, President uh, Boyd Packer said you can, you can uh, fix behavior a lot um, more quickly by studying doctrine than you can by studying behavior. And you'll be called upon to make a sacrifice. Because knowing God requires obedience to him and sacrifice to him and not to some man. Certainly not to me, but not to a pope, not to a president, not to a priest, to him. You're not trying to get to know me or if you are, you're a damn fool, you're supposed to be getting to know the Lord. You're not supposed to be getting to know some local presiding authority.
0: The foregoing are excerpts taken from Denver's Fireside Talk on the Temple given in Ogden, Utah, on October 28, 2012, Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, Talk 1, entitled Be of Good Cheer, given in Boise, Idaho, on September 10th, 2013, and Denver's 40 Years in Mormonism series, Talk number 2, entitled Faith Given in Idaho Falls, Idaho, on September 28, 2013. In addition, Denver has written extensively about this topic. If you are interested in learning more, please review the following blog posts, among others. Gospel Study, posted November 17, 2011. Christians Should Study Mormonism, posted January 12, 2017. How I Study the Scriptures posted March 18, 2010, 3 Nephi eleven thirty six. posted September 29, 2010, Scriptures, Not Traditions, posted February 24, 2014. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at com. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. A complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers are available to download free of charge at restorationarchives.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.